this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. My guests today are two of the co-founders of Vertical Bridge, a company that builds and leases communications infrastructure. You might recognize that name from the January issue of our magazine, which featured Vertical Bridge on the cover. Here to talk about what their company has been up to since we ran that profile are Alex Gelman, Vertical Bridge's CEO, and Bernard Borgai, Executive Vice President of Operations. Alex and Bernard, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thank you. Hi, Katie. It's always fun for me to go back and talk with people and companies that we featured in the magazine, but this one feels especially timely. It's crazy to think how much the world has changed since we published the Vertical Bridge story back in January. Even then, there was a huge need for communications infrastructure to support the technology we all use every day, plus 5G was getting off the ground. And now with COVID, the need for communications infrastructure has just accelerated in a way that I don't think anyone could have imagined. So that's all to say there's a ton to cover here. I have so much to ask both of you about, but let's start with an overview of the company itself. You can explain it a lot better than I can. So Alex, do you mind kicking it off and describing Vertical Bridge and what the business does? Uh, happy to. Thanks, Katie. Um, and it, and um, it's a pleasure to be here. So Vertical Bridge is focused uh, on macro towers predominantly and all in the U.S., uh, it's a company that was started by Bernard, myself, and a couple other folks um, six years ago. It's dog years in, in our world, so that's <laughs> like 40 years ago or 42 years ago. But And really, the idea when we started the company was to be a, a, a sizable tower company in the U.S., but to remain private. So, so far, so good. Uh, and uh, we've grown quite a bit. We are now the largest private tower company uh, in the U.S. And there have been a lot of changes across the wireless sector recently. Can you give our listeners a 30,000-foot view of the, the current dynamics within the industry and where Vertical Bridge fits in? Sure. Uh, a lot of moving parts. Um, I think the, the main dynamics in the industry are, one, 5G is coming, so there's a lot of noise and excitement around 5G and what does that mean? There's a lot of marketing that it's already here, but uh, there's a lot more investment to come uh, to make that a reality for everybody. The T-Mobile uh, Sprint merger was quite controversial, took a long time to accomplish. Uh, very interesting, unique really in the history of wireless in the US in that it created a specific fourth carrier to replace Sprint, namely DISH. So that's very, very interesting. And then I would say the third major theme would be that there is an increasing interest in the digital divide, which has really been uh, accelerated by the realities of this pandemic with so many people forced to work and, and be educated at home. It's really shown the what a uh, handicap really it is to um, not have good internet at home. It's hard to learn on equal footing. It's hard to work on equal footing with people who do if you don't have that. So, so that's, uh, I think, will create a ripple effect long term about how do we make sure that everybody has at least a basic level of Internet at home. And with those changes to work, virtual learning, telehealth even, you know, what impact has that had on, on Vertical Bridge and, and how have you guys responded Bernard, do you want to take that one? 
Yeah, I think uh, with the pandemic overall, and what you've seen is that uh, everybody's staying home and relying on their broadband network to uh, uh, continue working. And I think um, two uh, clear things have come out of this whole situation. One is that uh, broadband wireless networks are truly now the fourth utility. People just need to have access to it in order to uh, conduct their daily lives. Um, you know, with telehealth, being able to at least talk to a doctor uh, via a video call because you can't go to the office. And also from an education standpoint, all of school, all the schools going online and everybody else who um, couldn't go to the office but still had to get their work done, um, you know, relying on broadband connectivity and, and their wireless uh, networks as well. But the other part of it is exactly what Alex just mentioned as well, that the digital divide. Uh, you know, now you clearly see uh, the impact of uh, the rural part of uh, parts of the country not having access to true broadband infrastructure. And in a case like this, this pandemic, uh, you know, how much uh, that starts hurting people uh, in their daily lives, economically, education-wise, access to healthcare. One of the eye-opening um, uh, experiences has been that, you know, this digital divide really starts hurting people who do not have access to uh, broadband uh, infrastructure from all, all levels of, you know, daily life, economically, education, healthcare, and et cetera. And, uh, you know, for us, what we've seen is that being in the uh, infrastructure side, we can certainly help uh, close that divide uh, in, you know, partnership with our clients. And uh, that's, that's really where I think the next uh, sort of uh, frontier of trying to close the digital divide is going to focus on uh, as a result of this pandemic. And Alex, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier. Um, you know, you you mentioned um, the the benefits of being a, a private company, and that was something that we really covered in the profile of Vertical Bridge. That was one of the overriding themes. You know, you mentioned in that story the advantage that they gave the company over publicly traded competitors and its ability to be more nimble or to know what its competition is up to. So I'm curious about whether that has been an asset to the company through the pandemic. I think being private is an asset through the pandemic the same way it has been uh, before the pandemic and will be afterwards. I mean, if anything, we're a little smaller, so it's easier to be to adapt and change. As things go along, you know, is the office open? Is it not open? You know, there's some people who want to come to the office, especially now. They're kind of tired of being home. Um, so we can be a little more flexible around tailoring to individuals' needs. But the, the main benefits are the same, Katie, in that we, we can take a very long-term perspective uh, and, and really partner with our customers uh, for the long term, they're going to be here for a while and knowing that we're going to be here for a while and that we're looking five and 10 years down the road uh, is very beneficial. So that hasn't changed. And I think the flexibility and creativity that that enables is uh, very powerful in helping us grow. And a lot of our listeners are involved in mergers and acquisitions. So I know they'll be interested to hear about recent deals that you've been involved with. So Alex, can you talk about Vertical Bridge's M&A activity this year and the deal you recently announced with the, the broadcasting company Cumulus to acquire its, its tower portfolio? Yeah, so overall, uh, it's been a very interesting M&A year in that I've been around for a while. So whenever something like this, a shock happens and they're always different, um, but there tends to be sort of everybody freezes and no transactions happen for a little bit. 
you know, if you go back to uh, the early 2000s and the tech crash, it really affected towers a lot because it was considered tech back then. And then if you look at 2008 into 2009, which was really a financial market crash, that really affected towers for close to a year. This pandemic affected towers for a week. Um, there was a week where the public tower stocks traded down, all M&A sort of slowed down, and everybody was wondering what was going to happen, and then it went back into full gear. So the, the headline on the M&A market through the pandemic has been very, very active, lots of assets on the market, lots of bidders, prices have, if anything, risen through the course of the middle of this year. Um, so very, very vibrant, even with more supply. We have, we did sign uh, a transaction with Cumulus. I'll let Bernard speak more specifically about that. Thank you, Alex. Yeah, so um, Cumulus, you know, um, a lot of credit has to go to our partner, Bob Page, who um, leads our M&A department. Uh, Bob and I started uh, meeting with the Cumulus team four years ago in Las Vegas during the uh, NAB shows. And that's how really relationships are cultivated. And, you know, back then we had just, um, finished acquiring the iHeartRadio portfolio. And um, so during that time, Cumulus has gone through some structuring and has come back out uh, as a much uh, you know, stronger company. And um, for us, it was a, a pretty important um, transaction. It has certainly cemented uh, Vertical Bridge's position as the um, largest uh, owner of broadcast assets and uh, tall towers in the country. And, uh, you know, after five years of uh, servicing iHeart, Alpha Media, uh, DigiD, and many other uh, broadcast companies, we have truly crafted a very experienced broadcast team from engineering to operations to uh, leasing and sales. And uh, so we know how to really operate within that world. And I think at the end of the day, uh, uh, regardless to all the commercial terms that uh, were being uh, sort of discussed, uh, what gave us the advantage was that we knew broadcast and we could execute and operate and make sure that uh, Cumulus's operations would not be disrupted as part of us uh, taking ownership of those towers. So an exciting transaction certainly uh, changes the uh, landscape for us. We're, we're very you know, uh, happy about uh, being uh, able to acquire this uh, portfolio. And uh, it, it's just uh, another one of those uh, milestones that uh, you know we're pretty excited about. And you also announced a securitization in June, which I believe was the first of its kind to happen since the start of the pandemic. So Alex, what was that process like given the slowdown in the asset-backed securities market? Yeah, very much like um, this, that was our fifth one overall, but we were scheduled to go in uh, April. We sort of hit the brakes, um, but it was became pretty clear that the market for communications infrastructure um, notes and specifically towers was open. So we, we came back. If anything, Katie, we came back a little too early because rates even got better. We had a very successful transaction. And then we saw some of our colleagues and uh, friendly competitors did even better. So good for them. But it came back really fast to, to my point about, you know, the difference between 20 years ago and 10 years ago is the, the class of communications infrastructure in general, that wasn't even a thing back then, but towers in particular, 
it's really evolved to where there's a real recognition in the financial community around the stability of the cash flows and the security of these instruments. So there was a lot of interest. And then more recently, we, um, right on the heels of Cumulus, signing up Cumulus, um, we refinanced the securitization trust that we had with the iHeart Towers in there and added Cumulus in and priced that last week. Also, very, very successful, literally um, 250 basis points inside of the original financing of that portfolio in 2016. So, sea change and with, with more leverage. So, uh, really a very, very uh, uh, successful uh, securitization, which really let us, um, you know, one of the benefits of being big and being at scale is we build up a lot of cash. So when we do something like Cumulus, we can refinance it in a securitization market right away and tap the growth of that trust. And we just on the heels of the securitization we did where we had cash in our balance sheet, we can buy something like Cumulus, which is a $213 million acquisition with very little incremental capital that we have to bring in. Uh, especially equity. So that's very favorable to the existing investors when we can do that. Hmm. Another thing that kind of speaks to your point about the underlying strength of the towers market is the the FCC announced this summer that it was working to make wireless and wireline networks available more quickly to meet the, the growing demand for broadband. Bernard, what does that mean in practice for Vertical Bridge? And, and does that create any immediate new opportunities for you guys? You have to look at what FCC can do and influence in order to get uh, broadband network and wireless networks uh, deployed more quickly. And they have a very uh, critical role. And there are two uh, pillars that they, uh, they've been very focused on. Uh, and especially the current regime in the FCC has been extremely supportive of the wireless industry and in trying to get the infrastructure deployed as quickly as possible. The first one is the most expensive aspect of uh, owning and deploying or, and expanding a network, which is the spectrum. And uh, what the FCC has done really well lately is that they have made more and more uh, spectrum available to the wireless carriers and operators and so they can continue to expand into the rural areas where the coverage is uh, lacking or uh, add capacity in order to maintain uh, the throughputs that people are expecting these days from their broadband networks. The second thing that X, uh, uh, FCC has done really well uh, is that they've looked at the infrastructure side and they've looked at all the rules and regulations that were in place for the past perhaps 20, 25 years as to what it took to build one single tower. And there are a lot of regulatory steps and permitting and approvals that one has to go through in order to uh, be able to build a tower. And we as an infrastructure industry never ask for um, sort of rules to go away, but we, we ask for certain time limits uh, and sort of durations that we could um, plan around and also an efficiency within the process. And um, what uh, Chairman Pai and his staff have done is that they have really listened and they've done a very good job in addressing the majority of these issues within the processes that we all have to go through, injecting uh, what I would say uh, uh, certain limits and time factors that bring up the uh, bring out the efficiency needed in order to deploy the network, uh, while also keeping their the other side of their constituents uh, sort of uh, happy with the process, such as the tribes and some of the other. Uh, groups that have to have a say whenever you want to go through a permitting process. What all of that means for us is that 
we now have clients who have more spectrum to deploy and these licenses come with certain time limits that they have to put these license uh, the spectrums to use and we now have a more efficient process to deploy tower so we can do it faster so our clients have a need to deploy they now have the spectrum to deploy it and we have a much more efficient process it's not perfect we continue to work with it but it's much better than it's been in the past five or six years so the, the benefit for us is that we now can build um, help build the net network for our clients and our partners in a much more efficient and faster way why is making more spectrum available why is that important and and how does it actually work so uh, look um, from a physics standpoint spectrum is finite and cannot be uh, sort of expanded or created so uh, uh, every telecommunication company that uses a, a certain uh, frequency uh, uh, if they want to use what is known as a licensed frequency, which is nobody else can use it to interfere with their operations, they have to get that license from the FCC. And throughout the history of telecommunications, depending on the, the various sectors such as TV, radio, satellite, you know, cable, and now uh, wireless telecommunication and etc., the FCC has controlled the entire communication or frequency spectrum and has portioned it out to different industries to use. Um, and uh, there's a lot of technical um, uh, limitations or obligations that come with it, but the wireless industry is one of those sectors that um, has been uh, growing in its demand for more frequencies um, because there's more and more people rely on the wireless network and uh, networks and keep on using it. Um, the carriers need to add more spectrum to, to accommodate um, capacity and also in order to expand coverage of the net. Thank you. That's really helpful. Other big news in the wireless world this year has been around the closing of the T-Mobile Sprint merger. What impact, if any, will, will that have on you all, Alex? Um, I think it'll have a really positive impact, Katie. Uh, as I mentioned in the beginning, it's really an unprecedented merger in that um, you had number three and number four combining, um, bringing the U.S. down to three, you know, national existing wireless carriers. A lot of talk about that, a lot of opposition to it. But I think it's positive because the new T-Mobile is now uh, relatively equal in size to AT&T and Verizon. Um, they will have much more free cash flow to de deploy. And I think importantly, if you believe that wireless is a critical part of the future, um, T-Mobile is predominantly focused on wireless. The other two companies are not. So while they make choices uh, every year and quarter about where to deploy their capital, uh, T-Mobile is not a mystery. They're gonna deploy their capital in wireless. So I think that will spur the other two to spend more faster, which I think is great. The other uh, impact of the merger was the creation or establishment really of DISH as the new number four national carrier. And they may not be number four for long, so I shouldn't call them that, but the new national um, player. And they have a really uh, aggressive plan to build the majority of the country within a handful of years. It's a very, uh, uh, significant undertaking, but very exciting because our business is, as Bernard said, is driven by investment by these companies, and there will be a lot of investment by all four of them now 
in the foreseeable future. The last thing I would say also is here comes 5G. Mm-hmm. And another initiative that was underway prior to COVID for Vertical Bridge that we we touched in in the story that we wrote was your involvement in the first responder network. And that was something I found really interesting. And especially now that we're in the midst of a public health crisis, I wanted to hear, you know, your your description of what that network is and whether it's played a role over the last um, several months as we've been dealing with COVID as a country. Bernard, do you want to take that one? Sure. So, you know, the first responder network or um, the, the main one that's known as FirstNet was as a result of the um, uh, congressional uh, report on the uh, uh, 9-11 incident. Uh, and the government decided that a, a first responder network nationwide had to be deployed. So during a, a disaster, whether it's natural or, or God forbid, man-made, uh, our first responders uh, would be able to uh, communicate freely and not compete with the general public who would be using the same you know, spectrum and, and infrastructure. Um, it took a while to get going, uh, but uh, AT&T uh, started, uh, it secured the, uh, the, the rights for FirstNet. They have uh, probably over the last uh, four years or so uh, been deploying uh, their network. And uh, as a result of uh, that, you've he- you've heard um, you know Verizon and T-Mobile carving out certain solutions that they want to sort of um, target the first responder network as well. I know Motorola is working on it as well. And uh, to us, all of that is good news. One is that uh, it certainly uh, is imperative to have a network that can be dedicated to first responders when needed uh, to ensure that um, you know the critical communication at critical times does not get disrupted. And um, the second thing is, again, from our end, it comes down to an infrastructure layer that's being deployed. Um, on the type of assets that we own and manage on towers and, and you know, things that uh, people are using these days to deploy telecommunication equipment on. Um, I can tell you that our experience is that AT&T has taken the uh, uh, obligation of FirstNet seriously. They've done a lot of upgrades of the antennas using uh, deploying that spectrum and getting the network ready for it. Um, we've heard in certain cases that the rural first responders were relying on that network in order to accommodate some telehealth calls and video calls and responding to uh, uh, elderly who were uh, sort of uh, not able to get themselves to uh, hospitals as a result of COVID and things like that. So you already are seeing some of the uh, benefits. And then with the recent natural disasters, you know, the, the few hurricanes that have come through the Gulf and also the wildfires uh, out in the West Coast. Uh, uh, I was talking to one of my um, operations managers that runs the West Coast for us, and he, he brought it up that, hey, uh, uh, the sheriff and everybody else are using FirstNet uh, in order to stay communication. So you can see that the, sort of the concept uh, is coming to sort of self-actualization and is being used. So uh, uh, this, is, this is another aspect of uh, public and private sector doing something that's definitely for the good of the country. Mm-hmm. And does that network uh, extend into rural areas? Like, is that a major focus for it? Yeah. So AT&T's obligation is to deploy uh, anywhere that a first responder agency has to be able to respond to. Uh, so they are certainly working on getting that uh, type of a footprint. And I think if Verizon and T-Mobile continue to compete with them, they're going to have to do the same as well. And looking at the telecommunications industry more broadly, Alex, are there areas you'd point to as being underinvested and where where might opportunities exist for private capital investors to 
play a greater role in this space? Yeah, good question. I think that the backdrop is just with 5G, the estimate is it's going to require about 300 billion of investment by the national carriers, by the wireless carriers to upgrade the whole country to 5G. That's that's a lot. So they're going to need help with that. I think as far as where the opportunities are, it is evolving. Uh, if you look at the story of towers over the last few decades and, you know, towers has, has morphed into communications infrastructure, which more broadly includes fiber as well as small cells and data centers. Um, I think that one place to look there is adjacencies. What else is infrastructure? What we've seen is a lot of money flowing into communications infrastructure. A lot of it from other infrastructure investors, uh, investors in, in bridges and tunnels and, and um, highways and ports and airports. Um, I think now we're going to see more real estate investors accelerating into this space because there's a lot of questions about some some forms of traditional real estate post-COVID. And, and so it's a little scarier, whereas it's pretty clear that communications and the infrastructure that underlies communications uh, is here to stay and increasingly critical. So I would say that um, that's where the investment opportunity lies. Returns are definitely falling. There's a lot of competition. As I said, prices are being bid up even in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so returns are, are falling. I think that scale matters because there's a lot of money to be put to work and these are big customers. So you need to be big enough to be meaningful to them. And I also think longevity matters. So it may be for private capital, but not so much for private equity. Does that make sense? Because I think if it's a, uh, five to seven year tenored kind of funds, that's not long enough for what the underlying you know, customers want. They want more longevity than that. So I do think there's there are places for funds to go to work, but there's also a lot of funds looking to go there. Mm-hmm. And Vertical Bridge marked another milestone this year by becoming certified as carbon neutral. And when I first heard that, one of my first questions was just, you know, what does that look like and, and what kind of changes would would have to come about in order to, to achieve that? So I was hoping you could walk through some of those, Bernard, and explain why this was important for the company as well as for the, the sector overall. I'd be happy to. So let me first restate that not only we became carbon footprint neutral, but we were the first tower company in the world. Ah, okay. That's, that's even a... Uh, bigger uh, cause for us to uh, to celebrate. Um, but let me take the question in different um, uh, segments that you, you highlighted. Why is it important? It certainly wasn't for publicity. Uh, you know, climate change, as far as we're concerned, it's something that we need to deal with. Uh, the extent of it can be debated. Um, but I, in 26 years of being in this industry, I've never had to deal with so many hurricanes and wildfires every year. Something is happening, right? And um, you know, unfortunately, that's a topic that these days may sort of uh, run down um, the political side of uh, which side you lean on. But for Alex, Mark, and I, it wasn't that. It was part of our culture. Um, We've been very active and very serious about our corporate citizenship role within our communities. We own assets and we have employees, you know, in all 50 states. Every year, we've been. contributing uh, and more and more as the company grows. We uh, dedicate more uh, of our budget to our charitable network. And uh, this year uh, we're uh, targeting to uh, to donate another $1.5 million. 
So uh, for us, becoming a carbon footprint neutral company was the next natural evolution of what we felt we should do if we can do it. And Alex called me, you know, in October of last year and I said, you know, I'd like to investigate this. We really didn't know what it would take, you know, how expensive it would be, how difficult and anything like that. And we just agreed that we would start looking into it. And if feasible, we'll go for it. And so it, it, eight months later, we had managed to um, uh, sort of accomplish the goal. Uh, so this is why we did it, because we, to us, this was corporate citizenship. We could do it. It's not a political thing. We do see you know, the need for everybody taking some actions where they can in order to uh, reduce their footprint, carbon footprint and help the environment. And um, we wanted to continue to show our commitment and our culture to our employees, investors and clients that we will do the right thing. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the good thing about this was that as we went through the exercise, you find out that you don't have to sacrifice profitability in order to achieve this, because what you do to achieve carbon footprint neutrality ultimately reduces your um, operational expenses as well. Um, and so if you look at all the things that we've done over the years from uh, deploying LED lighting systems in order to reduce uh, utility consumption, um, you know, upgrading our generators and HVACs to newer models so they're more um, fuel um, consumption efficient and cleaner. Um, things we've done in our uh, office as far as eliminating paper products uh, so we don't have to keep on uh, sort of uh, generating more waste that is uh, more difficult to, uh, to recycle. And then coming back into really doing this this whole project, which dealt with everything from every employee's travel throughout the year, uh, our construction activities, our vendors and partners' construction activities, and the you know, travel time they put into repairing our sites, and uh, the utilities that we used uh, you know, across all of our portfolio and our offices, and pretty much everything that you do day in and day out. We had to you know, sort of sit there, calculate it, and then we work with this uh, consulting company, um, you know, Natural Partners, um, that had a very established way of guiding us through this process. And uh, they had experts that took our answers and came back with more, and it was a iterative uh, sort of a process. And at the end of the day, they came back with a calculation that said, this is your footprint as of 2019, and uh, these are some of the things you can do to reduce your footprint moving forward because we've committed to remain carbon footprint neutral for the rest of our uh, existence uh, as Vertical Bridge. And also, these are the things you can do in order to buy the necessary offsets, the credits, in order to achieve uh, uh, footprint neutrality. And we chose four uh, projects in North America. Uh, we wanted to stay in the home front because, um, as Alex said, we are a company that, you know, all of our assets are just in the U.S. And so we chose four, four projects and, um, you know, sort of uh, bought the um, required amount of credits in order to become certified and become carbon footprint neutral. No, thanks for that. And I think that um, it's interesting to hear you break it down because I think a, an undertaking like that does sound so daunting. On the other hand, looking at upgrading to LEDs or evaluating your HVAC system or employee travel, it really, when you break it down like that, yeah, there's a lot to do, but it, you know, it's intuitive and, and those don't seem as intimidating, I think, to take on. Well, Bernard makes it sound easy. <laughs> I don't know about that, but one thing I've told everybody who's sort of asked me about the process is that 
I, I would imagine that the first time you do this is difficult. But once you know what numbers you need to keep track of, you can start tracking it throughout the year. So the process is first quarter of every year, we have to submit our data and uh, sort of uh, go through the process again. So last year was certainly unknown to me. So pulling all the data was more challenging, but this year is gonna be easier because we've been tracking the same criteria and we know exactly what things we need to look out for. Granted, because of COVID, there's far less traveling that took place as well, but still, you still know what to look for and what to track throughout the year. So come January, it's easier to compile the data. I want to close by posing a, a sort of personal question to each of you. Um, so before editing this story, I was not familiar with what I've since learned are called stealth towers. So essentially cell phone towers that are disguised, not always convincingly as trees or church steeples or a flagpole. There seem to be a lot of different designs out there. So I wanted to hear from from each of you, you know, what is your favorite and are you partial to any of these camouflage towers that are out there? Bernard, do you want to take that one first? Sure. My favorite is uh, flagpole. Uh, I think every time you can really put a uh, uh, pole that has this massive U.S. flag on it on a beautiful day, uh, especially in South Florida, when it's nice and sunny and breezy and you drive by and you see that flag, sort of unfolding, uh, it, it's a beautiful sight to see. And uh, a, a lot of residents and uh, counties and townships welcome that more than anything else. Um, so that's my favorite. Uh, although I have to say that from the guy uh, who has to run and maintain these things, stealth towers are a lot more expensive to maintain and more difficult than regular towers. Uh, but, you know, we, we want to be a good partner in, in the neighborhoods that we deploy. So uh, when when we have to, we certainly will consider it. Uh, but yeah, my favorite, definitely. And that's that the tower that's in the background of the uh, cover of the uh, magazine in January. So it's a beautiful sight. All right, Alex, what's your pick? Well, I have to say that tower on the cover of the magazine um, is special for me because you can actually see that from my son's school. He subsequently graduated. He's now senior in college, but when he was in high school, you could see that flagpole from the school. And I remember walking up and he's pitching, he's on the mound and you can see that flag waving. And it was like, I got a little verklempt as they say. Um, but uh, my favorite though, that's my favorite tow stealth tower, but my favorite type is definitely the cactus, the large uh, Suaro cactus that they, they can go 60 feet high naturally, I think. So those giant, because because they're truly stealth, like you really can't tell. You can tell because it's a little bigger than normal sometimes, but as you as you alluded to, Katie, some stealth sites aren't very stealthy. Mm -hmm. It's a little embarrassing. Whereas those giant cactus are pretty good. I would say the flagpole's pretty stealth too. When we first saw the photos, I was I was convinced. Yeah. Yo, those are good. It's a, it's like the, the trees that have orange antennas in there. Yeah. Probably not a good idea. <laughs> I'm not sure who came up with that one, but. Well, Alex and Bernard, it was great to talk with you both. I really appreciate your, your time today. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having us on. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. 
While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.